Okay, my next task is a real pleasure. I first met Dale Phillips at uh, Kankakee Valley Symposium a few years ago, and then uh, I offered to uh, let him be a tour guide on the Charleston tour, and he did a great job on the uh, Charleston tour in 1995. He's now the manager of the Chalmette uh, unit and the Acadian unit of the Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve in Louisiana. Um, Dale is a fine speaker and a fine historian. I'm sure you'll enjoy his presentation tonight. His speech uh, is about everybody's favorite Union General, uh, and that's Ben Butler. The title of his talk is Ben Butler and the Occupation of New Orleans, and I am very pleased to introduce my good friend, Dale Phillips. Dale? It is a great honor for me to be with you this evening. This is something that I have looked forward to ever since Larry extended the invitation. I, I just hope I live up to everyone's expectations. Um, I would like to, to thank Bruce, though, for that well-put-together uh, quiz. Uh, that is my talk. Thank you very much, and I hope to see you again sometime in the future. Um, he basically touched on almost every major point that I'm going to be talking about. We're going to go into it in more detail. But his questions were right on target, and now we're going to look at some of those very things uh, in a little more detail. Uh, unfortunately, though, I have picked up one bad habit, though, in the 10 years that I've lived in the Louisiana area and worked on this program. Many of my colleagues that you've met over the years have a habit of when they go to places like Chicago and Milwaukee and Kansas City and the other roundtables around the country, they like to bring back a little memento of, uh, what the, of their visit. Unfortunately, I seem to pick up this bad habit of collecting silverware. I don't know how this ends up in my pocket, so the folks uh, may want to uh, come get their silverware. Also, if anybody disagrees with me, it gives me weaponry. But uh, what I want to do this evening is basically my job tonight is to stir your emotions a little bit. I'm not going to stand up here and try, and I'll voice some opinions, but what I'm going to try to get you to do in the next 40 minutes or so is to think about some of the decisions that this gentleman made, why he made them, maybe get you to look at it a little bit differently than you might have before. Not necessarily justify his actions, but try to explain them and try to place yourselves in the same situation and how you might have handled it. And as uh, Bruce pointed out in that quiz, uh, he had some very difficult circumstances to work with. But when I say the name Ben Butler, uh, just by shouting him out, what, 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 what words come to mind? What words uh, just jump out at you when you say Ben Butler? The beast, spoons. What else? Women. Women? That's, a, that's one I haven't heard before. Well, the women order, that's true, yes. Uh, okay, that's a new one. Politician. Ambulance chasers come out every once in a while. Um, basically, you're all telling me what I want to hear. You're all using very strong emotional words to describe this man. We are going to talk about basically a short six-month period basically between May and December of 1862. All we're going to talk about takes place in that very short time period. A lot happens in that time period that are some of the most controversial actions of the Civil War. And that's what we're going to look at today. But even today, as Larry will uh, testify to, if you bring up the name of Ben Butler's, bring up Ben Butler's name in, in certain areas in New Orleans, uh, they will be very quick to either remove you from the premises or to let you know their opinion. I gave this presentation a few weeks ago to the Daughters of the Confederacy, the chapter in uh, New Orleans, and I can guarantee you I was extremely nervous before I did it. But I actually came out of there unscathed. So um, 
it, it still stirs emotion, and that's what I'm going after to tonight, and we'll, we'll see how successful I am at it and get the projector to work. I want to start by talking about New Orleans in 1861 that Bruce pointed out on the quiz. Yes, it is the largest city in the Confederacy. It is three or four times, and as Bruce said, sometimes five or six, depending upon the numbers you look at, times bigger than any other city in the Confederacy. Does anybody want to take a stab at what the second and third largest cities were? They were about even in population. Richmond, Charleston is the other one. Both Charleston and Richmond had a population of roughly about 60,000, whereas New Orleans' population was more than 170,000. It is a huge city for the, for, compared to the others in the South. It, contained, it, it manufactured port receipts of roughly $186 million in 1860. 110 million of that was in cotton. It contained 13 banks. $24 million in capital was in those banks at the outbreak of the war. $12 million in gold. It contained numerous factories, foundries, boat shipbuilding yards, uh, all sorts of war manufacturing resources the Confederacy desperately would need to fight a successful campaign against the North. But for reasons that we'll discuss here for a few moments, the South never really paid attention to this great city and its resources for a variety of different reasons, the most obvious of which is they never really believed the Northerners would be crazy enough to attack upriver. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. The title of my program, before the, the lights get too dark, I've passed out a handout. On the handout, at the top of the handout, is a map which shows the map that I'll have up on the screen for a second, in a second, that shows the basic areas I'll be talking about. At the bottom of that page, though, is the title of my talk and my favorite Butler quote, if everybody hasn't seen that yet. Has everybody stumbled across that by now? Uh, ben Butler's quote of, I never really discovered true happiness until I lost my character. Uh, that, that, to me, sum, that sums up the man perfectly. Um, he just, this is Ben Butler. Ben Butler didn't care what you thought of him. He did what he thought was right. He did it to the best of his ability. And if you were opposed to him, he crushed you if he could. And if you crossed him, you were a lifelong enemy. And that's the Ben Butler I need you to think about right now. This is the same map that's on the top of the handout I gave you. Many people consider New Orleans a port city, but it's actually almost 100 miles from the Gulf of Mexico up the Mississippi River. New Orleanians and the Confederacy were lured into a very false sense of security by believing the federal forces would never be crazy enough to attack upriver, to get past the two brick fortifications, Fort St. Philip and Fort Jackson, which guard the mouth of the river, the obstructions the Confederates had placed in the river, the small river defense fleet that they had constructed, the ironclads that were under construction, the Louisiana and the Mississippi. They felt that this was a secure enough defensive ring to protect them from invasion from the south. Constantly in the early years of the war, resources, manpower, armament, ships would be funneled off to the north to meet the expected Union attack from, from, the, from, from, the, Midwest, from the Midwest, downriver. Everyone thought from Jefferson Davis on down that the attack would come downriver, not upriver. They were lured partially into this false sense of security, and I'll put in a plug for my park. For those of you that have any questions about Jean Lafitte National Park, it's a rather unique one. I'll answer those later. Uh, the Chalmette Battlefield, of course, and the Battle of New Orleans. But most people don't realize that during that battle, one of the reasons the British were unsuccessful is that their fleet had been unsuccessful in running past Fort St. Philip and coming upriver to join the army, flank the American positions that Andrew Jackson had built at Chalmette, 
and capture the city. Had the British Navy gotten up the river, it would have probably worked that way. But they were stopped. There's a reason why even if they had gotten past St. Philip, the British probably would have never made it to Chalmette. It is a reason that has changed radically by 1862, which wasn't given much credit. Who wants to stick their neck out and take a shot at that change in, in uh, the Industrial Revolution? What has changed between 1814-15 and exactly steam? To come up the Mississippi River with sail vessels, with, bank, with uh, cannon positions all along the river, was a death trap. Every bend would be a death trap. But the power of street steam rendered those bends in the river useless. It is something the Confederacy apparently did not take into full credit. They never believed the Federals would be powerful enough to move upstream against the current of the Mississippi, past the defenses, and ever reach the city. And that's, of course, not the way it's going to work out. I want to read you a quote, which gives you, it's the best one I've found so far that describes this laid-back attitude of the defenders of the city of New Orleans. It was written by a soldier named George Duval, a Confederate cavalryman and Wilson's Rangers that was stationed in the city in these early months of the war. He wrote, we armed and equipped ourselves, and the ladies said we were the finest looking set of men in the army. If fine uniforms and good horses have anything to do with it, we were a fine body. When we were ordered out to drill, which was every day, we would mount our fine horses, gallop out back of the city, and the first order we would receive from our commanding officer would be dismount, hitch horses, march, hunt shade, begin playing. There was not a company of cavalry in the southern army that obeyed more promptly than we did. We would remain in the shade until the cool of the evening when the orders would be given, cease playing, prepare to mount, march. We would then get back into the city. The people would come out, cheer, wave handkerchiefs, uh, throw a wave handkerchief, present us with bouquets, for we have been out in the hot sun drilling all day, preparing ourselves to protect their homes from the northern invaders. This pretty much summarizes, I feel, what was going on at that time. Very few people, I don't know what I'm up against here, but I think the, the elephant hurts loose. Ah, the Irish dancers. Okay, well, that's sort of fitting. But um, it, um, this, is, this is the attitude that existed in New Orleans at this time. Everybody is taking for granted the Federals won't be crazy enough to attack the city from the south. Well, as my good friend and colleague uh, Larry will point out to you, I'm sure at some later date, the Federals have other ideas. Off the mouth of this, the Mississippi, they are assembling one of the most powerful fleets ever put together in the history of North America. Under the command of David Farragut, a Tennessean by birth, whose loyalty to the Union at this point in the war is still in question, is assembling one of the most powerful fleets ever to be seen in this part of the world. It will eventually consist of 17 warships, containing over 154 heavy guns. It will be assisted by 19 heavy mortar schooners, 13-inch mortar schooners, under that very humble individual, David Dixon Porter, who we all, we all have known for his humility. I'm sure we all know a lot about him. You'll hear more about him later. The idea was to bombard the forts at the mouth of the river with these heavy mortars and Farragut to run his fleet by the Confederate defenses. Given the job of supporting this naval attack is an infantry force of 15,000 men under the command of Benjamin Butler. Now, up to this point in the war, Butler hasn't been a raving success, but he has been fairly popular in his securing of Baltimore, in his getting to Washington, it, excuse me, in his securing of Fortress Monroe. He really hasn't fouled up too badly yet. Now, I'm not even going to begin to attempt to defend his military career. I'm going to leave that for some other crazy person. 
Um, so we're not even going to talk about that part of it. There's no, there no way to possibly defend some of his military decisions. But here he's given command of 15,000 basically New England troops to support this naval attack. Now one of the misconceptions I try to remind my fellow Louisianans of is they have this image of this force that Butler comes in here with of being this battle-hardened, seasoned, vicious group of Yankee soldiers. They are not. These are green Yankee farm boys. Many of them never have been away from home. Most of them, if any of them, had not seen any combat yet. These are young kids, most of them, away from their homes for the first time. These are not battle-hardened, vicious Union troops that sometimes you'll be led to believe that Butler commands at this point in the war. And I need you to keep that in mind when we talk about some of his actions later. George McClellan's father-in-law probably came up with the most interesting quote that I've found so far when he found out that Benjamin Butler had been given command of the New Orleans expedition. He simply says, I guess we have finally found a hole big enough in which to bury this Union elephant. So here you can see uh, Butler isn't exactly widely supported by his own commander and his father-in-law. At 1 a.m. Did that move? Yeah, there we go. At 1 a.m. on April 24, 1862, Farragut's fleet began to move upriver. By 5 a.m., they had successfully passed the forts, and I'm going to skip over a lot of that so I can leave something for Larry to talk to you about later. And Farragut's find one of his greatest moments here. He gets past the forts, past the obstructions, destroys the river defense fleet, and steams right upriver. He moves right up past the Confederate defenses at Chalmette, and eventually will drop anchor off the city and basically orders it to surrender. For those of you who have been in New Orleans, you know the city is under sea level. The river was high at this point. So basically the Union guns firing over the levee uh, shoot, are pointed down at the city and could have easily bombarded it had they cho as they chosen to. There are 30,000 bales of uh, cotton burning on the wharves as Farragut approaches the city. There are burning hulks. The burning hulk of the unfinished ironclad Mississippi goes floating by. Uh, Farragut thought it was a fire raft at first. So basically he sees a city in total confusion. The Confederate forces are desperately trying to evacuate the city. The mayor really doesn't have any control. It's just massive confusion of this huge populace when Farragut first arrives. He eventually will order the city surrender. The mayor basically says, talk to the general. The general says, talk to the mayor. Uh, Farragut orders the United States flag raised over the Customs House and the U.S. Mint and the other United States property. Uh, they go up. One of them over the U.S. Mint is torn down by a name, uh, gentleman by the, name, by the name of William Mumford, who we'll talk more about later. Uh, the force that uh, Farragut sends ashore to raise those flags has to retreat back to the vessels. He really can't take control of the city until a land force is present. The land force is still busy downriver. Even though, that the, the, as I said, he would send small groups ashore of officers with Marines supporting them, they're not strong enough to actually take physical possession of the city, even though they have military control. Now keep in mind, you've got a very hostile population to deal with right here. Downriver, Butler still has his hands full. The forts have not surrendered. What had to be done to reduce the forts to surrender is that Butler's forces had to be landed in the swamps several, almost a half mile behind the forts in the marsh. They had to wade waist deep through the marsh, through the muck, which I have had to do to get to Fort St. Philip myself. It's a lot of fun. I'll tell you the snake stories later. Um, they had to wade through this marsh, come up behind the forts, and force them to surrender. It is not until several days after Farragut actually passes the forts, after a mutiny actually takes place inside of Fort Jackson, that the forts will finally surrender. With their surrender, Butler and his army forces are finally able to go upriver. 
and on May the 1st, he lands at the base of Canal Street with 2,500 of his men. The first place he occupies will be the Customs House. Now, how many of you have had a chance to visit New Orleans? Okay, how many of you have had a chance to visit the Customs House? If you ever get back there again, please visit the U.S. Customs House. It is a tremendous building. It is a huge building of stone that basically is floating on a giant raft of logs and cribbage. It is an amazing building. It's a huge fortress. Butler occupies it and fortifies it almost immediately and gives him a base of operations. He then slowly begins to bring the rest of his troops ashore and disperse them through the city. On May the 2nd, he moves his quarters to the St. Charles Hotel, probably the best known hotel, the fanciest hotel in New Orleans at this time, a few blocks away. It is there that Ben Butler shows his first card of how he's going to rule New Orleans. Mayor Monroe comes to visit him. They try to, he tells Mayor Monroe, I'm declaring martial law. Uh, get your act together, get control of this city, or I'll do it. What happens as these two men are meeting is an angry mob begins to gather outside the St. Charles Hotel. Butler begins to realize it is a very tense situation. He turns to one of his aides, whispers something to him, the aide disappears, and then he's just quiet for a few moments. A few moments later, four, two sections, four guns, four Napoleons of the 6th Main Battery come rumbling down St. Charles Street. They unlimber. They load with canister and they point right at the crowd. He turns to Mayor Monroe, General Butler does, and says, Mayor, break up this crowd or I will order the battery to fire. And there is no doubt in my mind that had Mayor Monroe not gone out on the balcony and talked that crowd down and had them disperse, that Benjamin Butler would have ordered them to open fire. The crowd disperses and there is no confrontation. The next thing he does is he orders all the newspapers in town to print his declaration of martial law. Several of them refuse, including one, the True Delta, one of the strongest of the pro-Southern papers. The editor will write, as this first step of the commander of the federal troops in possession of the city is indicative of a determination on his part to subject us to a supervision utterly subversive of the character of the fearless patriotism which the True Delta has ever maintained we will promise this much, and we will perform it, namely to suspend our publication, even if it means our last crust of bread is sacrificed, by the act rather than to molt one feather of that independence which, in the presence of every discouragement and danger, we have ever made our honest boast. We have no favors to ask. We have never asked or desired any from any party, and we are prepared to stand or fall with our fortunes with our adopted Louisiana. Well, Butler beats him to the punch. He shuts him down. He has a little talk with the editor. I'm not sure exactly what he said to him, but by four, by four days later, by May the 6th, the, the paper has suddenly decided they will print his martial law orders, and he does, they go back into publication. So the general obviously was very persuasive with this uh, editor. What do you think? This is Canal Street in New Orleans at the time of the war. It's changed a little bit. What do you think was the first problem Ben Butler had to face based on what we've talked about so far? He's got a population of 170,000. He's 100 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, surrounded by Confederate-controlled territory. Supplies, food, starvation. A lot of people don't realize how desperate the situation was when Butler first occupied the city. He really had only one source of supplies, and that was from upriver. His first problem was to find a way to feed and control this hostile population. All he needed at this point was some sort of a riot. There were only about 30 days worth of food. 
there in the city. And now he has an army to feed. He's got 5,000 troops to feed. So Butler makes some decisions which will later draw a lot of controversy. Uh, he basically allows supplies to come through the lines. He sends out the following order. The commanding general of the Department of the Gulf has been informed that livestock, flour, and provisions purchased for the substance of the inhabitants of the city of New Orleans are now at the junction of the Red and Mississippi Rivers. The suffering condition of the poor of the city for want of these supplies appeals to the humanity of those having authority on either side. For the, for the purpose, therefore, of the safe transmission of these supplies to the city, the commanding general orders and directs that a safe conduct be afforded for two steamers to be laden with provisions, cattle, and supplies of food, alive or slaughtered, each day, if so many choose to come. This safe conduct shall extend to the entire protection of the United States forces, and that their coming and going will not be interrupted, and they may return immediately to the junction of the Red and Mississippi Rivers. So he immediately basically opens up the lines for the trade of supplies to prevent starvation for within the city. He even will spend several thousand dollars of his own money to help purchase these supplies to keep the poor and to keep the population of the city of New Orleans fed. Had he failed to do this, there probably would have been severe bread riots, severe food riots within the city within a short time. He could not possibly have kept that city supplied on just supplies coming up the river. He gets a lot of flack for this because a lot of contraband comes through the lines. There's probably a lot of illicit activity that went on. We're going to talk about some of it in a moment. His brother was responsible for a large part of it, but it saved the city from starvation. There was not one instance of starvation of any civilian or soldier in the city of New Orleans during the time of the Union occupation, which very easily could have happened. He does something else that's kind of ironic. He, or the Confederates, are counting on an ally to help destroy the Union force after they occupy the city. Anybody want to take a stab at what that secret ally was? The yellow fever. Malaria or the yellow fever, which is a form, a, a, different, a different type of disease, but far, this is deadly. They felt that these northerners would start dropping like flies as soon as the summer got there. Well, Butler, not knowing exactly what he was doing, had all these unemployed people laying around the streets just doing nothing. What he did is he went out and he encouraged business owners in New Orleans to donate to a relief fund. I'm not sure how he got the encouragement across, but he was successful. With this money he would raise, he paid these workers to begin cleaning up the city. And as I said, New Orleans sits below sea level. Sewage sits, dead animals sit, there are stagnant water all over the place. He took this huge out-of-work force and used it to clean up the city. Cleaned up the canals, picked up all the carcasses, wiped out all the stagnant water, filled in the holes. So what in reality he did was he wiped out the mosquito breeding pads. He didn't know he was doing that, but that summer there will only be two cases of yellow fever in New Orleans, and not one Union soldier will die of it. So the great ally that the South was hoping would come to their aid at this point does not happen because of Ben Butler's desire to clean up the city. New Orleans at this time is basically dead in its track. Its financial system is collapsed. It still is a very angry population. It is a very far, it has very strong connections to Europe. To Europe. There are several consulates in New Orleans that we'll talk more about later. It is by far the most difficult situation ever faced, and I, I will stand behind this statement, it is the most difficult assignment given to any Union officer in the course of the war between the states. He was responsible for, for both for the administrative and the military aspects 
of the New Orleans and Louisiana area. And I will challenge anyone to find an assignment given to any other Union commander with such difficult circumstances to try to succeed. It had to be a, an immense task, and I'll talk some more about that later. What he does now, besides bringing the food in, is he gets himself into a whole bunch of trouble by mixing himself up with speculators, the greatest of which, the most corrupt of which, is his own brother. This is Andrew Jackson Butler, Ben's older brother, a man to whom Benjamin was extremely devoted. This gentleman was allowed to follow his brother to Louisiana. And what he would do is he would go out into the countryside around New Orleans and he would buy supplies, basically force the plantation owners to sell raw foodstuffs to him, especially cattle, at very, very small prices. He would then use his brother's connections and use government transportation to transport those supplies into the city and resell those supplies for many, many times what he had paid for them, securing for himself a quite a large fortune. Uh, James Parton, a very pro-Butler writer who would write a book about Butler's time in New Orleans after the war, would uh, even write this about uh, A.J. Butler, his brother, Colonel A.J. Butler, who found himself by action of the Senate without employment in New Orleans, and having both capital and credit at command, embarked on the business of bringing cattle from Texas to the great advantage of the city and to his own considerable profit. These actions went on all during Ben's time in New Orleans, and Ben basically just turned away from it. I have found no written record that Benjamin profited directly from these transactions, but he did choose to ignore his brother's actions. Unfortunately, Andrew Jackson Butler will die in 1864. See, we will never know probably a lot of the truth about exactly how this business was conducted. Unfortunately, but Ben Butler, to his dying day, would never say a negative word about his brother. He was immensely devoted to his brother. But to give you an idea of how bad this corruption was, when Butler leaves in December of 1862, and he's replaced by General Nathaniel Banks, this Butler, the brother, sends the following letter to General Banks. Let's see if we've got any keen law enforcement people in the group who can pick this up. Dear sir, talking to General Banks, if you will allow our commercial program to be carried out as projected previous to your arrival in this department, giving the same support and facilities as your predecessor, I am authorized on obtaining your assent to place at your disposal $100,000. Anybody want to take a guess at what that might be? Yeah, it's uh, pretty obvious. It's a bribe. Banks, you can't say a lot of good things about, but I will say one, my one good thing about Nathaniel Banks. He basically took this order, threw it back in his butler's face, and had him marched out of town. And that's the last we'll hear about Andrew Jackson Butler. So I will say that about Banks. He did not succumb to this temptation. So as I said, whether or not Butler himself, Ben Butler, profited from his brother's actions, we don't know. Now, there are many other speculators engaged in the same type of activity, both northern and southern, who are capitalizing on the situation. Ben chose to ignore a lot of this. He bothered himself. He took his time bothering with other things. And he probably didn't pay the attention to them that he should have. Uh, it eventually will be one of the things for which he is condemned. We talked earlier about his efforts to clean up the city. Here's another shot of the city at the time of the war. This is uh, Charter Street in the French Quarter. You can see it's pretty much a, a cosmopolitan city with 170,000 people spread out over a very small area. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jacobson yesterday in Milwaukee had the copy of an order written by Butler which was for Union troops to occupy a private home in New Orleans. Those were issued primarily because there was so little open dry ground 
that when troops would arrive in the city, they basically had to be put anywhere they could. And in most cases, they occupied either deserted houses or houses that belonged to Confederate sympathizers that had been encouraged to uh, leave as quickly as possible. So it was a very interesting document. I had not seen one before. It was an actual handwritten document ordered by Butler. We talked about yellow fever. We talked about the sewage. Now we're going to go on to his woman order, and probably the most controversial act that took place during his administration. Butler and the women of New Orleans didn't get along from the start. When martial law came out, it says basically no Confederate symbols will be shown, no Confederate flags will be shown, no support from the Confederacy could be shown at all. The women of New Orleans responded to this by wearing Confederate symbols on the upper half of their body and began wearing them around town. They let that slide for a while, but eventually they got bolder. They began insulting Union soldiers. They began cursing them. They began, excuse me, swearing at them. Confrontation was coming. Uh, they, the final breaking point came when Admiral Farragut was on his way through New Orleans, through one of the streets. And those of you that have been there, you know how the balconies hang out over the streets. Uh, you can see it here in the drawings. Apparently, a, the contents of a chamber pot where it was emptied onto the head of uh, Admiral Farragut. And he immediately, of course, went to General Butler and said, I think we need to do something about this. It's getting out of hand. And Butler decides, yes, I agree with you. We better do something. Uh, another example of how bad this confrontation is getting, Butler himself would write uh, later on, another time, five or six women on a balcony whirled around with something between a shriek and a sneer as I passed underneath the house. Turning to an aide, I loudly commented, those women evidently know which end of them looks best. So here you can see you have a very loving relationship developing right from the beginning. He decides to issue order number 28. And I will read to you the contents of the order. Now, this order is issued on May the 15th. We're talking only 15 days after his arrival. All this is happening very, very quickly. And that's the thing you really got to keep in mind. This is all happening very, very fast. This is the order that Butler issues. As the officers and soldiers of the United States have been subject to repeated insults from the women calling themselves ladies of New Orleans in return for our most scrupulous non-interference and courtesy on our part, it is ordered that hereafter, when any female shall by word, gesture, or movement insult or show contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States, she shall be regarded and held liable to be treated as a woman of the town plying her advocation. That's pretty strong words for Victoria and the Victorian world. But as I will ex I'll explain this to you, as I explain it to my Louisiana colleagues, and when they look at it this way, it's a little bit different. I'm going to use Larry as a guinea pig here. Let's say someone you know, a southern woman, is insulting a, union, a young, union, young, young union soldier. Eventually, one of these union soldiers was going to snap, and he was going to retaliate against one of these ladies. Larry, what's going to happen? What are the southern men around them going to do? You better believe it. You would have a riot unlike anything you could possibly believe, and that is what Butler was afraid of. That is what this order is designed to do. It was designed to prevent the eventual confrontation that he knew would take place between one of these ladies, between one of his green soldiers with a weapon in his hand, which then would respond, the people around it would respond to it, he would have bloodshed in the streets. And as I remind my Louisiana colleagues, if those, that type of rioting had taken place, if New Orleans had developed into a bloody street fight, if artillery had been fired down the streets of New Orleans, if New Orleans had suffered the fate of Columbia or any of the other towns that are burned during the War of Atlanta, 
many of them that I usually talk to on a regular basis who are descendants of these individuals might not be sitting there today. This order succeeds. It stops the insults dead in their tracks. There are isolated incidents later on, but they are very few and very far between. The bloody confrontation that Butler fears so much never takes place. So I put to you the idea that this order, as vicious as it sounds, saved many, many lives in what could have been a very bloody confrontation. The reaction to it by the South is swift and direct. Mayor Monroe writes, your officers and soldiers are permitted by the terms of this order to place any construction they may please on the conduct of our wives and daughters and upon such construction to offer them atrocious insults. What, uh, what Butler does with this little document, he says, okay, Mayor, you obviously can't control your population. You're out of here. And he bags them and declares martial law fully and installs his own government, wipes out all trace of the civilian government of the city of New Orleans. Uh, he puts uh, his own general, one of his own subordinates, in the place of acting military commandant. Governor Moore of Louisiana will write, history records instances of cities sacked and inhuman atrocities committed upon the women of a conquered town. But in no instance, in modern times at least, without the brutal ravishers suffering punishment from the hands of their own commanders. It is reserved for a federal general to invite his soldiers to the perpetration of outrages as at, at the mention of which the blood recoils in horror. So you can see they're, they're jumping on this bandwagon. Mary Chestnut will write in her diary, there is said to be an order from Butler turning over the women of New Orleans to his soldiers. Thus is the measure of this man filled. We thought that generals are always, are always restrained by shot or sword, if need be, the brutal soldiery. This hideous, cross-eyed beast orders his men to treat the ladies of New Orleans as ladies of the town, to punish them, he says, for their insolence. And that is the first reference I have come across of the word beast being used when applied to Ben Butler. He is condemned, a price is put on his head, it triggers writings both internationally and locally, but as I said to you before, it does the job. And Lincoln stands behind his general 100% at this point. Doesn't like it all too much, but he stands behind him. Now other problems start to develop. Once the ladies have come under control, he now has to face another problem. Remember I told you about Mumford earlier? and he's tearing down the flag from the top of the U.S. Mint when Farragut's fleet was off the city. Well, Mumford wasn't very bright. He was an out-of-work gambler, basically. Instead of keeping his mouth shut, which might have prevented the punishment he was about to receive from happening, he goes around town boasting about what he had done. Farragut finally says something to Butler again about, you really need to do something about this guy. He's kind of an embarrassment. And Butler finally says, I will catch him, and I will do something about it. Now, as I said, had Mumford kept his mouth shut, he probably would have got away with it, but he kept shooting his mouth off. It almost causes some problems, and so Butler has him arrested, brought before a military tribunal, and the verdict of the tribunal is as follows. William B. Mumford, a citizen of New Orleans, has been convicted before a military commission of treason and the overt act thereof in tearing down the United States flag from a public building of the United States for the purpose of inciting or other, other evil-minded persons to further resist the laws and arms of the United States after said flag was placed there by Commodore Farragut of the United States Navy. It is ordered 
that he be executed according to, this, according to the sentence of said military commission on Saturday, June 7th, between the hours of 8 and 12. He is taken back to the scene of his crime, the United States Mint, where a gallows has been constructed, and William Mumford is executed for his tearing down of the flag. Had he kept his mouth shut, I think he probably would have been spared. But because Butler has to bring in the control again, rein the population in, he's got to keep this tight control, he executes Mumford. Now, I don't want to condemn Butler for this, because there's another side of Butler. Just two days after that, six Confederate soldiers that had been captured for the second time without being properly exchanged, that had also been sentenced to death, were brought before Benjamin. And he questioned them at whether or not they understood what the idea of exchange meant. They obviously did not understand what it meant, and so he commuted their sentences and had them sentenced to basically being prisoners of war. He did not execute them because they obviously didn't understand what they had done. He also will have several of his own men executed for stealing at different times during the course of the few months he is in New Orleans. Now, whether or not it's because he didn't get his own cut of what they stole, I'm not even going to venture a guess into that area. But here you see to what the point I'm trying to make is I'm trying to show two very different sides of this unique individual. He now begins to very loosely interpret the confiscation acts. Butler basically believed that if you supported the South, he had every right in the world to crush you. You were the enemy. This is a man who supported Jefferson Davis for presidency, the presidency in 1860 at the Charleston Convention. He has done a 180 degree swing politically. He is now about as radical a Republican by late 1862 that you could possibly imagine. He basically has any uh, confiscated goods that belong to any Southern supporter brought into his possession. I'm going to read you something at the conclusion of my talk, which adds some uh, validation to some of this, and I'll let you form your own conclusions. The spoons, where this comes from, is one of his first acts when he occupied New Orleans was take control of the home which David Twiggs, the first Confederate commander of New Orleans before Mansfield Lovell, had occupied. Still in that home were the sword given to Twiggs by Congress for his role in the Mexican War, as well as a very elaborate family silver. Basically, what uh, Butler does is he takes the sword, ships it back to Congress, he takes the silver, and he keeps that basically for himself as a prize of war. And from that nickname, or from that action, will come the later idea of all family silver being stolen throughout New Orleans and the surrounding plantation, and there the nickname Spoons. That is where it starts, in the home occupied by David Twiggs. But I want to give you an idea of just what Butler is faced with. I want to give you two examples of situations that Butler was faced with every day. The first is a woman that came to him for two weeks straight, crying her eyes out. She was separated from her children, who were just outside the lines, outside New Orleans. Desperately pleaded with him to allow, allow her to go through the lines to take something to her children. But after two weeks of constantly showing up at headquarters, crying every day, he finally gave in and allowed the lady to go upriver in a vessel to go supposedly to her children. When she comes back to the city, a very sharp provost marshal notices the boat's a lot deeper in the water than it was when it went out. And he starts tearing up the wood planks and sure enough she's running contraband. A few days later another woman came before Butler and asked the same thing. Can I please go see my children? They are across Lake Pontchartrain. I desperately need to get them some food. Butler brought the hammer down. No more passes would be given. 
This lady, which we later was found out that was a legitimate case, basically was not given permission to leave. She apparently fainted, according to one of uh, Butler's subordinate officers. The lady collapsed, went into a state of total confusion, and never really recovered for the remainder of the time at least they were in New Orleans. This will give you an idea of the constant strain that Butler was faced with in dealing with this kind of population. Had to be a very, very difficult task. You've got to keep in mind, this is also a man who is still in his 40s. This man's only a few years older than I am right now. You think of Butler, you think of somebody much older sometimes. He's not. This man is in his late 40s at this time in his life. He is still really a young man, old for that time period. But when we think of a 40-year-old being faced with all these different challenges, you can see it was an immense responsibility for any person. Now we're going to spend a few moments talking about Butler the general. And I'm going to make this as brief and as painless as possible. He does a couple of good things. He does move his forces up the river after he occupies New Orleans. The Federals do occupy Baton Rouge. They do occupy Natchez. They even make a half-hearted attempt at capturing Vicksburg, which hasn't been heavily fortified yet at this early part of the war. They even try to dig a canal across the uh, Louisiana side of the river opposite uh, Vicksburg to bypass it. But they are unsuccessful. The rate of disease within the Union troops upriver becomes too great, and they are eventually forced to withdraw. Back at Baton Rouge, Confederate forces under General Breckinridge in August of 1862 will attack Baton Rouge. They will be unsuccessful in driving the Federals out of the city, even though they are almost successful. They almost succeed. They do drive the Federals all the way back to the river, but they are unable to retake the city. But they do render the city almost useless, forcing the Federals to evacuate the city and move back down into the New Orleans defenses. In October of 1862, Butler will have regrouped his forces. He will come upriver again. He will land at Donaldsonville, heavily damage and burn most of that town. And then he'll move his forces down Bayou Lafourche under the command of General Weitzel. They will sweep the Confederate resistance out of the Lafourche country. They will move all the way to today, what today is Morgan City. This is one of the best breadbaskets of Louisiana. And from this area, using the Confiscation Acts, will come many of the supplies and many of the things that will end up in Union hands that will secure the Union occupation of New Orleans. Very, very important military uh, action, which is the most successful military action that Butler will undertake while he is in New Orleans. Most of his time, though, is basically spent just dealing with guerrillas, dealing with isolated Confederate units. There really isn't any major military effort on his part in this excuse me, in this short time period. What is happening, though, is that Ben Butler does seem to be accumulating a great deal of personal wealth. It is at this time he made one of his greatest mistakes. Some of these things that he was acquiring, that he was buying with his own money, he made the mistake of shipping it back north on government ships. You've all seen the movie Glory. You know the scene in there where Shaw wants to bring his men to the front, and he goes to the general and says, I know what you're doing. You're shipping property back north as personal baggage on government transportation. Well, that's exactly what Ben was doing. Ben was taking stuff that he was purchasing, including cotton, placing it in federal supply vessels when they would arrive in the city, and shipping it back north for his personal use. And you know how he justified it? He didn't try to deny it. You know how he justified it? He was saving the federal government immense amounts of money, which he was, because they didn't have to buy ballast for the empty supply ships to take back north to keep them from, you know, keep them from, keep them, uh, from uh, overturning. This was his reason for doing this. And he made no bones about it. You, whatever you say about this man, he is not a coward. 
That word does not come into the vocabulary. This man was as iron-willed as anyone you could possibly imagine. He also tended to enjoy people making fun of him. And he very much enjoyed quick wit in other people. He had one instance, one event that took place, which I find to be one of the more humorous ones. Very early in the occupation, one of the soldiers of his garrison, an Irish soldier, died. I'm fitting with the Irish dancers here. Uh, died of natural causes. His colleagues, his comrades, tried to bury him in the churchyard in the cemetery at St. Patrick's uh, Catholic Church. Well, the parish priest, a Father Mullen, did had no. He came. He basically stopped the dig, grave digging. He said, "I don't know who this man is. I don't know if he deserves a uh, Catholic burial. You can't bury him here." So for this action, he is hauled before General Butler. So he goes into the room, and here's this angry General Butler, very short, very stocky man, very angry. The priest is scared to death. He doesn't know what he's going to say. The general looks at him and says, well, I understand, or it's come to my attention, that you have refused to bury one of our soldiers. And the father thinks for a minute, and he composes himself and looks back at the general and simply says, no, general, you, you've got everything all wrong. I assure you, nothing would make me happier than to bury all of you. <laughs> and apparently, Butler just burst into laughter. It completely diffused the situation. And I'm not sure exactly what the final, what they did to solve the situation, but apparently they got, to, they got along with each other and there were no serious ramifications from this action. But it gives you an idea, of, again, of the type of man he was. But now we're coming near the end of Butler's occupation of New Orleans. He now makes his final critical mistake. Word reaches him that immense amounts of money, gold, silver, medicines, are being funneled through the Confederates through the different foreign consulates that are in New Orleans. Butler makes the mistake of hearing about a large amount of gold that is stored in the Dutch consulate. He storms the consulate, seizes it. Sure enough, he's right. Seizes hundreds of thousands of dollars worth in gold, which it probably was destined for the Confederacy. He does this with several other foreign consulates in New Orleans. This, the Europeans just cannot handle. They immediately go to Lincoln, and we all know how Desperately, President Lincoln feared European intervention on the support of the part of the Confederacy. This action, he can no longer support General Butler. He can no longer protect his general. He has to respond to the European criticisms. And by seizing the foreign consulates, Benjamin Butler has gone too far. That is the straw that finally breaks the camel's back. Up till now, Lincoln was willing to tolerate everything to be replaced by General Nathaniel Banks. His parting document, his parting paper, his parting announcement to the city of New Orleans contains the following passage. I shall speak in no bitterness because I am not conscious of any single personal animosities, talking to the people of New Orleans. Commanding the army of the Gulf, I found you captured but not surrendered, conquered but not orderly, relieved of the presence of an army but incapable of taking care of yourselves. I restored order, punished crime, opened commerce, brought provisions to your starving people, reformed your currency, and gave you quiet protection as you have not enjoyed for many years. So he's, was he just not paying attention to what was going on around him? I don't think so. This was sort of a last slap in the face. But he has one more up his sleeve. Before he actually gets on the vessel and heads back north, a few nights before he actually leaves, a party of workmen slip into Jackson Square. And under the cover of darkness, this is Jackson Square, you see the famous statue of Andrew Jackson with his hat 
tilted in the middle. A bunch of chiseling starts. They get up in the morning, they look at the statue, and there's a new phrase on it all of a sudden. This is Benjamin Butler's parting remark to the city of New Orleans. He has had inscribed in the statue, the Union must and shall be preserved. And that statement, and for those of you that have been in New Orleans, still exists in that statue today. To remove it would force the destruction of the statue itself. So Ben Butler has his parting shot to the city of New Orleans as he boards that vessel a few days later and returns to the north and returns to other stories that I will leave for other historians to explain to you. I'm not even going to go into the Army of the James. Uh, Bruce touched on a lot of those things. I will leave that for someone else to venture into at a later date. As a conclusion, I would like to read to you an article which appeared in the Boston Advertiser. Now remember, it's just after Christmas, 1862, that Ben is leaving New Orleans. The following newspaper article appears in the Boston Advertiser on January the 11th, 1863. Below, three ships, two steamers, and one bark. These vessels will arrive at Long Wharf today at 9 o'clock. They contain the immense wealth accumulated by General Butler and staff while stationed at New Orleans, which is estimated at about $6 million. There are two full boots of diamonds, one tea chest of children's silver mugs, one cradle full of ladies' gold hairpins, two bandboxes of pincushions, one coal box of mosaic brooches, two clothes baskets of altar ornaments, 17 valises of gold and silver watches, 21 strawberry baskets of gold rings stole from the ladies of New Orleans while walking the streets, two sugar boxes of silver door plates and knobs, one stocking full of decanter labels, 16 sugar boxes of gold pens and silver pencil cases, 21 pianos, one for each of the staff, two church organs, one a little out of tune, one hack, five poodles, six stallions, and many other articles too numerous to mention. Colonel Blank, on his return, will bring the remainder of the booty. Don't think this was a pro-Butler newspaper. But again, it gives you an idea of the type of animosity this man generated in his lifetime. One of the things I'm going to do here as soon as I get the chance is go to the New Orleans Public Library and look through the wharf records, the docking records, and I'm going to see if I can find these three ships leaving New Orleans at this same time and see if I can find their cargo lists. I'm going to see if I can find anything to back this up from the southern end and see if I can give any validity to it. So right now it still remains a little bit unsolved. What I'd like you to think about this evening is what Bruce had on his questionnaire as a conclusion. After the war, he fails miserably as a general. We're not even going to touch on that subject. But what I want you to think about Ben Butler is who this man was. He was one of the most intelligent, feared, politically dominating individuals of his time. He just didn't get to be this general that he was by just circumstance. He is one of the most powerful politicians. And I want you to think about this. He is one of the individuals that was considered very closely for Abraham Lincoln's vice presidential candidate in the 1864 election. Now, of course, we know he, they chose Andrew Johnson. What do you think life would have been like for the United States had Ben Butler gotten that nomination? Now, remember I told you Ben Butler never forgot an enemy? Yeah, you, some of you know the story already. Old President Johnson runs into a little bit of trouble later in his presidency. 
And guess who writes the articles of impeachment? And guess who one of the leading congressmen to get rid of him is? Ben Butler. Now, as I told you, Ben Butler never forgot an enemy. He does have a very distinguished career after the war, runs for the presidency, serves as governor of Massachusetts, serves many terms in the United States Congress, very, very successful lawyer. When Thomas Edison is looking for a lawyer to defend his patents before the Supreme Court, Edison chooses Ben Butler. It is before the Supreme Court that Ben Butler will lose his life. It is, he is before the Supreme Court arguing a case in the 1880s. After leaving the Supreme Court, he is going back to his home in, in Washington. Uh, his residence he maintained there. He gets wet in a storm, uh, gets pneumonia, and will die a few days later. So this is a very powerful individual. And a few of the things that he stood for that have a very strong impact on our lives today. He supported the 10-hour work week. He supported women's suffrage. He opposed the expansion of the United States by military means. He was very much the liberal by the end of his life. This is a man who started off as a Democrat, a Breckenridge Democrat, a Jefferson Davis Democrat, went to a radical Republican, through the Greenback Party, back to being a Democrat. So he sort of sways with the political tide, but he never loses his power base. He is always one of the most powerful men in the United States during this time period, and by far one of the most controversial. And thank you very much for this great honor to speak to you this evening. Thank you. Questions? Or are we running too late? No, oh, you're, you're doing fine. We okay. have some questions. Okay. Um, I want to thank Dale for a very interesting and stimulating uh, presentation. Gives us a different perspective about Ben Butler. And as a token of our appreciation, we have a tankard uh, with the inscription presented to Dale Phillips for gallant service, Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, March 14th, 1997. Uh, once again, I want to thank uh, Dale for a very excellent presentation. And uh, now we'll have a question and answer period. Yes, Jerry? He was still very radical at that time period. I think Reconstruction would have been extremely brutal. I think that that time period, it could have been probably the worst thing that possibly could have happened. He still was very vindictive. He is still very much the radical Republican. I think he would have punished the South uh, to the absolute extreme of his ability because he was still full of a great deal of hatred at that point. And so I think it would have been one of the worst things that could have happened to our nation in the process of putting it back together. That's my opinion anyway. Oh, you reminded me of something I wanted to add real quickly, though. The I want to finish up the chamber pot story. Does anybody know how the women of New Orleans retaliated for the women order? They began having his likeness painted in the bottom of their chamber pots. I have never seen an original one. I've only seen reproductions. I got a hunch a lot of them kind of disappeared real quickly during the confiscation acts. But, um, or to prevent the confiscation acts from being carried out on them. But that is the way the, way the women of New Orleans retaliated against Butler's woman order. But had he been President of the United States, oof, that would have been interesting. 
as he began to mellow and shift back toward the more liberal things that he stood for at the later in his life, I think he would have been better. In 1864, I think he would have been a disaster. But for the political tide, it shifted. It had gone more liberal. It had gone back toward the Democrats. There was more a sense of reconciliation in the country at that time, more of a sense of understanding, of healing. I think he, too, moved with the political tide. I think had he been elected by some oddity in the 1880s, I think he would have done much better at that point. Ben Butler was a product of the political machine. Whatever he felt the political winds were, that's what he was, and he thrived on it. it and probably a, a, a harbinger of the future in the sense that he saw the future and what politics was to be. Yeah. Ralph has a yes, Ralph. Yes. Having spoken about Butler to this organization twice and to several other roundtables, first of all, I want to congratulate you. Thank you. It's an excellent job. Butler, indeed, was a fine administrator. He's a curious and interesting man. One of the best sources for anti-Butler stories is his own autobiography. He has no hesitancy in telling about himself because he's so supremely confident of his position. Years ago, when I had met Carl Sandburg and knew him for oh, maybe five or six years, I started collecting material on Butler. And, and I were talking one night and he said, Ralph, you'll write and you'll write and you'll read and you'll read and then one day you'll puke. <laughs> <laughs> He's responsible for some of the most colorful remarks in our political history. Speaking of him as a general, someone once said, he's as helpless as a child in battle and as visionary as an opium eater. <laughs> but my favorite quotation is, when Butler died, someone encountered Senator Hoare, H-O-A-R, on the streets of Boston, and said, Senator, are you going to General Butler's funeral? He said, no, but I approve of it. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's right on target, everything that was said there. He, he brought out this kind of emotional feeling in people. Yes, sir. How does a man who was born in New Hampshire and, and was an attorney in Massachusetts, how does he wind up supporting Breckenridge for president in 1860? And how does he go from that position to being such an intensely pro-union officer within a matter of months? I, mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I understand you talked about political speeds. Mm -hmm. Primarily, that's the first reason, is the political winds were changing. He sensed it. He believed that Davis and the Breckenridges, the power that they hated Stephen Douglas. So he believed that was the only way to prevent war. He believed it was the best thing that could happen. But when war is declared, he realizes he throws his whole heart behind the North. And he realizes that's the way the political winds are coming. The question was, why? how could he shift so quickly? How could he shift from supporting Jeff Davis from looking at Breckinridge as a possible presidential candidate all the way over to one of the most radical Republicans in such a short time. Again, he just that's the way the winds were blowing. It's the way to gain favor with the Lincoln administration. He wants to be right up there at the first, right within there with the punch. He hated West Pointers with a passion. He wanted to get in there and prove his worth as the commander of the Massachusetts militia and get in there and make a point right away. Why he changes and becomes such a vicious radical, I can't really say. The only thing I can think of is that he saw the defeat of the South as his key to furthering his political career, to destroy the old Democratic Party as he knew it, and become a leader of the new Republican Party 
beat the South down as hard as he could, now I guess this is perfectly my opinion, destroy the South as a political entity, and then rise to the top of the Republican Party. That would be my only offer as a suggestion of why he made that sudden shift. And I honestly believe he, be he believed in what he was doing. But then, like I said, after the war and in his later life, he sways right back again. That's my only explanation I can come up with. Yes, sir. Um, you know, did Butler have to carry out this threat in a special order? I mean, everyone quotes it, but it seemed to have a threat in itself. I've never heard of anyone actually any accusation of a little bit, yep. The question is, did Butler ever carry out the power he gave his soldiers in Order Number 28? And the answer is yes. There were a few isolated incidents of women who continued to take that chance of throwing an insult out, and they were arrested. They were usually confined for a short time either at Fort Jackson at the mouth of the Mississippi River or over at Ship Island. But they're grabbed real quickly. There's no confrontation. There's no real blow-up that everybody feared. But yes, it is used a few times, but very, very few times. Yes, Ralph. I once sold Butler's famous letter to a New York editor in which he defended the order. And he said the order itself was self-executing. Mm -hmm. He said, no matter what they say, remember that from the moment that order was issued, there were no incidents, really, of any note. Yeah. Nothing like what could have been. It I did its job. Asked our speaker, he didn't run. I'd run across some references to the fact that Butler was the first owner of our great, owner of the great racing yachts, the, the America. And uh, he was even accused of keeping, repairing, and storing the vessel in the, in, in, in the Union <laughs> shipyards in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And it so happened that a few years ago, my younger daughter, who was a, a banker and a very prominent banker, was appointed the first woman in history to be chairman of the board of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And I asked her to look into the matter, and she couldn't find anything about it. But it would be typical of Butler if it did happen. But when Butler wanted something, he went and took it. Yes, sir. Uh, is the uh, Yes, it comes from a statement he made during the nullification crisis in, I believe, 1832 or 33, when South Carolina first tried to secede from the Union uh, over the uh, uh, tariff regulations. And yes, it is attributed directly to Andrew Jackson. It's basically, basically he told the South Carolinians, basically, you do it and I'll hang every one of you. And he was a devout Unionist at that point. So yes. But the reason it was put there was not to, yeah, it was, it was one last slap in the face. But yes, it, that's one of the reasons it's still there. I'm, I'm quite sure if the New Orleanians really wanted to get rid of it, they would, or would have by now. Mm -hmm. One of them, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, sir. Most of them were, the question is, who actually put the death, gave, put the put bounty on his head, uh, who issued death threats against Butler? Most of them were issued by Southern newspapers, mostly Southern newspaper editors. I've heard stories of different Southern leaders from Jefferson on Davis on down uh, offering a reward for his head, but there's really nothing to substantiate that. Most of it was newspaper editors crying for uh, some sort of reward to be given for someone to kill this man. And that's something that's very interesting, and let me add to that. During this whole time period, you'd think somebody would have taken a pot shot at this guy. There is never an assassination attempt at Ben Butler. None. 
You think these, this, this will give you an idea of how feared this man was, that no one actually did try to kill him, even though he was so hated. Maybe he didn't want to waste a bullet, I don't know, but uh, he brought out that kind of emotion in people. I'd like to thank Dale Phillips uh, once again for a truly uh, very interesting presentation. I think all of us enjoyed it. I uh, hope to see you uh, next month when David Ruth will speak on uh, the Richmond campaign, on the Peninsula campaign around Richmond, which will set us up for the battlefield tour. That will be on April 11th. So I want to thank Dale once again, and then, uh, thanks for coming, and we'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.